0: All right. Good morning, everybody. Okay. So uh, kids, they already know what to do. They ran out of here like the place was on fire. And the youth, you guys are also dismissed. Uh, So middle school, high school, uh, Pastor Chris is going to take you out today. And um, so next week for our our Agape Fellowship, the youth again are hosting our 4th of July kind of Agape Meal. Uh, it's going to be a hot dog bar, and uh, what we wanted to say is certainly nobody needs to bring anything. We'll have everything, but if you want to bring something, you can swing by the info table and uh, just let them know. You can just sign up for whatever it is you want to bring. Nobody's going to be assigned anything, but if you love to bring stuff for uh, for potluck, you are welcome to do that. Um, just uh, want everybody to have that opportunity. We had a great. A wonderful time together uh, at our Friday Night Fellowship uh, a couple nights ago, so if you weren't able to join us this time, we're going to do another one uh, in July at the Nelson's home, and then probably another one uh, in August at least once a month. So it was a great time, so hopefully you can come out to one of those uh, other ones. As Pastor Chris said, uh, what a blessing today to have uh, Paul and Bethany with us, a uh, long time part of our CAMV family, and you may remember it was... How long ago? A year two? Almost a year ago? We sent them out as missionaries to Texas and somebody needs to take the gospel to Texas and they're the ones that the Lord called to do it. So they're suffering in Texas and uh, decided to take a break from the tornadoes and the hail and the 120% humidity and come hang out with us for a week. So blessed to have them um, same team that uh, is leading worship this morning is the team that's leading tonight for the exalt night. So if you've never been to one of these um, Sunday night nights of worship, I would really encourage you to come out tonight. It's just a slice of heaven as we just all worship together. It's an extended time of worship. There's no teaching. I'm sure you'll all be glad to know. I'm not going to say anything tonight. So, um, so come out tonight and just worship, uh, worship the Lord with us. We are going to look at the word this morning. Um, But before we do that, let's just pray and ask the Lord uh, to bless our time. So, Father, we thank you so much um, for all the opportunities that you provide to us, Lord, that we can fellowship together with one another, Lord, that we can uh, dive in and we can study your word, Lord. We thank you for that great privilege. And we pray even now, Lord, as we uh, take this time, Lord, and we really just continue in this attitude of worship, Lord, but we continue it Uh, As we go to your word, Lord, we pray as we pray each and every week that you would be our teacher, Lord, we pray that that teaching ministry of your spirit would be manifest here today, Lord, and that you would uh, open our hearts, Lord, open our ears to what it is that your spirit would say to your church, Lord, and we thank you and we praise you and we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to be in the book of Mark this morning as we're just continuing our study right straight through. We're going to be in chapter 8. We're actually going to finish chapter 8 this morning, looking at the last uh, handful of verses. If you don't have a Bible this morning, we have some that you can use while you're here. We have some that we can give you if you need one. So just raise your hands and we'll bring one to you. If you'd rather use a Bible on your phone, that's great too. Um, We'll be using the New King James Version, uh, but any version, whatever version you're comfortable with is uh, a great one. So, Mark chapter eight this morning, and we we left off last week after what we said really was uh, was a watershed moment in the life and in the ministry of Jesus. It was really a turning point where now everything uh, we're going to see starts to change. And we remember that it was not only that moment when the disciples made this declaration and this confession that that Jesus indeed was the Christ, that he was the, the promised Messiah that would come into the world. But in addition to that, then we saw that Jesus very clearly and very openly, he really laid out for them for the first time what the Messiah would actually do. And Remember that as the Son of Man, he would usher in the kingdom just as all the prophecies had predicted, but that the way that that was going to happen was going to look very different than the disciples could have ever imagined. That it wasn't gonna come through some sort of a a very decisive kind of a military victory over the Romans and, and having Jesus being crowned as king. But as Jesus explained, it was instead going to come through his suffering and through his rejection through his death, and ultimately through his resurrection. And we remember at this point that Jesus is in kind of this final portion of his three and a half years of public ministry. He is very much headed toward the cross. All these things that are about to happen to him in Jerusalem are right around the corner, probably roughly about five months away from dying on the cross for our sins at this point. And so his attention we're gonna see increasingly is laser focused on Calvary, right? And really on preparing his disciples for what was coming next. And so he's kind of declared to them that things are hard now, but now he tells them that things are about to get harder. And in fact, things are going to get a lot harder between now and the time when his ministry ended. And we remember that this was just such a mind blower for the guys last week. And we watched as poor Peter decided, remember he was gonna step in and sort of help Jesus out, kind of set him straight on some things, and remember it didn't work out too well for Peter right Peter tried to rebuke Jesus Jesus turned around and rebuked Peter and effectively told him that he just wasn't looking at things with the right perspective that Peter was looking and in fact we saw Jesus he kind of acknowledged all of the disciples because they all were looking at things really from an earthly kind of perspective instead of from that heavenly perspective and you remember when we left off He had told Peter, he said, that you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And so it's really this exact scene now that has set the stage for everything we're going to see this morning. And we're going to see it this morning in what is without a doubt, and by any standard, this is one of the most clear and most challenging teachings that Jesus ever gave. I mean, today's text is a jaw dropper and I know that none of you read ahead because if you had read ahead, you probably would have found something else to do, but I'm glad that you're here today because I think that we're going to see as we look together at this text, what I hope that we're going to see is that just as challenging as this text absolutely is, that it is also equally as encouraging right? Encouraging to the same degree. I think that it's actually a very encouraging challenge from Jesus because what we're going to see is that there is a very good reason why Jesus challenges us in the very strong language and in the way that he does. So notice next what Jesus does here. So he's just in this moment here while teaching the disciples. And look there just at the first half of verse 34, so Mark 8 verse 34, it says that when he had then called the people to himself with his disciples also, so remember where we are at this point. Remember we're up in the north of Israel, we're up north of the Sea of Galilee, we're in that place we talked about called Caesarea Philippi. And as we looked at last week, this was the epicenter for pagan worship. Remember, there were those multiple temples to multiple false pagan gods, right? The the Canaanite god Baal and the Greek god Pan and then Caesar Augustus, who we remember was worshipped as a god by the Romans. And this was this place that the Jews considered to be the gates of hell right spiritually right as well as geographically there was that big cave there in the recess of the mountain and it was this place we talked about where jesus had brought his disciples number 1 just to get away from the crowds and the multitudes down further south in israel but really to more fully reveal himself to them and here in this place just to really declare his victory over all of these different kinds of false worship systems and so we picture them at this point right out there probably in front of these pagan temples and what we see here is that what Jesus has to say next is so important that he actually turns and he invites all of the curious onlookers right people that were probably hovering at a distance he invites them to join in Because understand, even up here at what is the epicenter of paganism, no doubt people had recognized Jesus. People were very intrigued about him, right? He was this radical Jewish rabbi. He had this revolutionary message about this coming kingdom that he was ushering in. And so now Jesus now invites them in to hear a little bit more about this kingdom. So look at the rest of verse 34. It says, when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, if we thought that the minds of the disciples were reeling before, we can only imagine what a statement like this would have done in their hearts because this conversation had now gone way more than just a theological one. This had now turned into a very practical, a very personal kind of a discussion, right? He had already called these men to follow him, and it was bad enough that they just heard that Jesus was gonna suffer and be rejected only to die on a cross. And now Jesus is effectively telling them that they were being called to do the very same thing. And let's make no mistake this morning that Jesus is still saying that very same thing to each and every one of us today. Notice again, he's training the 12, but Mark very specifically tells us that he called the other people also to him. He calls these other people to tell them what he's about to tell them, so this is not just for the twelve. What Jesus is telling us here is for us, right? It's for whoever. This things that he says to them, this things that he, these things that he's saying to this crowd, are the very same things that he would say to us here this morning. So this is a very personal, a very practical challenge for every single one of us. Because this passage is famously referred to as Jesus declaring what we could call the cost of discipleship to his disciples right to any and all of his disciples remember he just explained to them that the kingdom he was bringing about was going to come about in a very different kind of a way now he's telling them that the ways of the kingdom are going to be very different than anything they could have dreamed right we're all invited to be a part of this kingdom but now this is what it looked like to be citizens in that kingdom right? As Jesus just said, it looks like denying yourself, taking up the cross, and following Jesus. And these words, as we learn what they really mean, they really challenge us. As Jesus very succinctly lays out what it really looks like to follow him, right? For whoever desires to come after him. Now, you guys don't need to shout out, you don't need to raise your hand, but how many of us here want to just come after Jesus and really follow him in this life. And I'm gonna go out on a limb and I'm gonna guess that it's most of us or you would be doing something else entirely on a Sunday morning like this, right? But here we are, right? We're born again by the Holy Spirit. We've been delivered from the power of darkness. Our feet have been set, the Bible says, on this solid rock. We have this whole new life now that's in front of us. And we say, you know what, I want to live for the Lord. I want to go forward in the things of the Lord. And we wonder, what does it take Right, what does it look like? What does it look like to to go where Jesus would go and to say the things that Jesus would say once he got there? How does a person live that kind of a life? Well, we don't have to wonder anymore because Jesus tells us exactly that and he gives it to us in three simple steps. Right, this is like one of those best-selling Christian books, right? Jesus, three simple steps to following after him. But how valuable is this input? Jesus is very clearly saying, look, if you want to do it, here's the way to do it. And he says the number one thing that it requires is the denial of self. So it requires that I deliberately, I purposely just refuse to elevate my own self-will or my self-interests or my self-wants. I refuse to elevate those things, first of all, above the word of God. And second of all, above the call of God or the will of God for my life. It means to purposely reject that, right? Moment by moment, decision by decision, I need to say no to self, right? I need to say no to the big I, me, and my, right? And I need to say yes to God. And what it's really about is it's it's really developing a complete different lifestyle, right? A a kingdom lifestyle. We develop it by the power of the Holy Spirit, but developing of a lifestyle that just says no to anything that would come into conflict with God's Word, or anything that would mean abandoning God's good plan for my life because of the hardship that that following after that, or the self-sacrifice that it would require. You know, it demands that we say yes To anything that God's word requires of us. What it really means is elevating his word and his priorities above my own for my life. You know it's the dethroning of myself and it's the enthroning of Jesus on the throne of my life. Most simply it means the putting to death of myself which is precisely what Jesus meant when he said that we were to take up the cross. Understand, the cross in that day was nothing less than an instrument of painful execution. Now, we have sort of romanticized the cross, right? Because to us, it's symbolic of something that's ultimately beautiful. But in that time, it was an awful, ugly, and a heinous sentence of death. And sometimes you'll hear a, a, a preacher kind of liken it, you know, like to the electric chair or to the gas chamber, right? And, and that sort of, I think, helps us to a point, but I think it doesn't really even begin to paint the entire picture because, again, beyond just being a means of execution, the cross was disdainful. It was denigrating, it was humiliating, and it was all of those things by design. It was the worst possible humiliation that anyone could suffer. At that time, a Roman citizen, if they were going to be put to death, they would have been beheaded. You were not allowed to crucify a Roman citizen. So when you saw a person carrying their cross, you knew not only were they on their way to die but they were on their way to die a very painfully slow process of death, right? So death by crucifixion didn't mean just death. It meant a very slow and painful death in just the same way that the process of crucifying self in our lives is often a very slow and painful process. As we go through that in our growth As disciples, right? So as we not only say no to self but we actually are saying yes to death. Death of that old person that we were. So both the denying of self, the taking up of the cross, right? His cross as our cross. It's a picture of just this absolute submission to the will of God at whatever the cost is. It's us saying, you know, Lord, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to obey you. I'm going to fulfill this call that you've given me, even if it means that I die in that calling. Right? It's when we, like Jesus, as Paul says in Philippians, that he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of of the cross. And I mean, we can see the high standard that's involved here, the sobriety with which someone that really understands what Jesus is calling us to. This is very strong and it is severe, and this is one of the most pointed sets of verses in regards to discipleship. But anything that falls short of what Jesus is demanding here, right? If we just continue to operate under our normal mode of of being self-governed and and self-preservation, self-sufficiency, Jesus knows that we are simply going to stop right in the middle of the path and we are ultimately going to turn back from where it is he's trying to take us, and we will never experience that fulfillment of his promises within our life that come from the word of God. We're never going to fulfill that plan that he has for our lives. So we absolutely need to take up our cross. And you know, how in the world how in the world can I ever hope to follow Jesus as my example and I'm preaching to myself this morning I'm not even talking to you guys at this point but how in the world can I ever hope to go where Jesus goes and do what Jesus does and to speak the things he speaks how can I hope to experience that true life in Christ right this one who came into the world and who died on the cross in perfect fulfillment of the Father's will at whatever the cost how can I hope to follow him if I don't start and carry that very same attitude within my life about my life. There needs to be this denial of self and the taking up of the cross, right? Saying no to self and saying yes to death. And then third, very simply, I need to follow him. And the idea here is that we need to allow him to take the lead, right? We need to let Jesus lead because despite what the bumper sticker says, Jesus is not the co-pilot. He's the pilot, right? He's the leader in this relationship. And like it says there, if Jesus is your co-pilot, you ought to switch seats because he needs to be flying this thing, right? We need to allow him to take the lead and need to allow him to be the one that determines the direction of our lives. And then we need to follow after him so very closely in that. And I think that this part, it, it, you know, it speaks of this beautiful personal relationship, right? Of speaking, uh, of sticking closely after as we're following Jesus. And I think that this is maybe the greatest key. To the longevity in our Christian life. This is the key to an obedient Christian life. It's absolutely vital, probably the most vital thing to us staying faithful to God and his calling on our lives. And it's, the, it's that point where our personal relationship with Jesus Christ truly means more to us than anything else. It means more to us than anything that the world or the flesh or the devil can offer us to walk away from it all. And for that relationship really to have that kind of a priceless value to us. You know, to where we say whatever it is that might tempt us to drift away from walking closely with Jesus, where I just know that if I even just take half a step back, from trying to walk as closely as I can with him each day in and out. But I know the moment I even just take half a step back from that to indulge in some kind of sin, I know you might not even recognize me in a week. But where that intimate relationship is so precious and it's so personal and it's so daily and so rich that we just wouldn't give it up for anything at all. That's the kind of relationship God is calling us into. And that relationship is the key to continuing in the relationship, to being faithful, right? It's that depth of that kind of beauty where we value it as the most important, most influential relationship in our life. And I know that this seems like serious business. And I know it because first of all, I can see your eyes glossing over, And there's more of you now with crossed arms than there were when we started. But the truth is, look, here's the bad. Jesus is saying this is simply the baseline for a real relationship, a discipleship. Jesus isn't saying, look, if you want to be part of like the Navy SEAL Christians or the Green Beret Christians, right? The elite of the elite Christians. No, that's not what he's talking about. He is talking about the normal Christian life as he defines it and We're going to see why in the very next verse. But for each one of us as Christians, there has to be that moment in time where I just say, you know what? I am just sick of this self-dominated life. That moment in time where I recognize that I am the single greatest enemy to my own Christian walk. And to moving forward in it. And I realize that I'm just tired of living this kind of a hybrid thing. Where I'm half devoted to God. But I'm sort of half still in the world. Under this weight of the selfishness. Where I come to that place where all I want to do is surrender to the full demands of this Christian life. And just choose by the grace of God to try to live that kind of life out by the power of the spirit. Whatever it costs me. It's just simply settling the issue of the Lordship of Jesus in my life. And the Apostle Paul, of course, he put it so well. This is what it looks like. In Galatians 2, he said that I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what Jesus is communicating here and it's not just kind of a point in a sermon. This is very, very real. It's very, very important. If we're going to follow Jesus, we have to get very good at telling ourselves no. And the reason that this is so important for any Christian who's trying to come after Jesus is because the place that my selfishness will lead me in life right? The path that it will put me on in life and where Jesus is trying to lead me in life and the path that he's trying to put me on in life, they are two entirely different paths. They are two entirely different qualities of life. So this is a real decision that we need to make in all of this. A person needs to decide, and the sooner the better, right? Which road I want to spend my life on and what, what do I want to commit my life to? Now, that was a lot, wasn't it? Right? I know that was a lot. And I believe that Jesus fully understands that that was a lot. He understands the the strength of the demands, right? He understands the great strength and the great difficulty of this great call that he's put on each one of us and the challenge that it is. And so what I think he does now is he continues, and now he follows it up in verse 35. He follows up this great challenge of verse 34 with some great encouragement in verse 35. So he just said, follow me to your death. And then in verse 35, he says, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And in the simplest sense, what Jesus is saying is, trust me, it'll be worth it. He says, as hard as this life is that I'm describing to you sounds, he says, there is no better life that can be lived in the world. There is nothing that compares to it. There's no other way that is worth living everything else in comparison to what he has laid out is meaningless it's just an empty existence and jesus says the only way to this new life is through the death of the old life because if we just keep our lives under our own stubborn self-control We're going to continue in this self-directed life. We're going to continue to make self supreme as it relates to the decisions that we make and how we live and where we go. And Jesus says that as we do that, we will lose our life, right? We will completely miss out on our life. Because true life, right, not just existence, but real life as God intended life to be, a life that's meaningful and has purpose and that has substance to it as a result, that kind of life is found only in following the Lord. So it's it's only as we say no to self and we say yes to death and we let Jesus lead, only then do we find life as it was intended to be, as hard as it might be. This is where true life is found. And to do anything other than what he describes there in verse 34, if we do anything other than deny self, crucify self, follow after Jesus, to do anything less than that is to miss life. It's to miss it maybe by degrees or it's to miss it entirely because this is the life that we have been created for. I love it in Acts 17 where Paul says that it's in him, right, in God that we live and we move and we have our being. To the Philippians, he declared that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To the Colossians, the apostle Paul said that you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now here's the problem. We now have this incredible clash. We have this epic clash. Countercultural clash between what Jesus is saying here as we compare that to the values and the priorities of the Western world. And even more so, more specifically, it is so countercultural to American culture and to American philosophy and what we all know as the American dream. Because here in this great country, we have this idea right? We have this dream. And I'm not saying that it's a bad dream. I'm simply saying that it's a dream, right? But it's a dream of peace and of prosperity, right? We want to live in peace. We want to live in prosperity. We want to live in comfort, We want to be able to do whatever it is we want to do and have things go as easily and as smoothly as they possibly can. And what it has done is it's created a culture that now more and more, day by day, it's become a culture that is just really all about the individual. It's all about you, right? It's all about what you want. It's all about what you like, right? Have it your way. You deserve a break today. Who remembers that, right? And what it all comes down to, it's just all about self. It's really all about the, the care and the nourishment and the feeding of self. Now, none of us should be surprised at all that this is where the culture is, right? But the problem for us this morning as followers of Jesus, the problem is not just that the culture around us looks this way, but that this perspective Is bleeding over into the church. And it's bleeding over into the church to the point where even some of us who are here this morning might be uncomfortable, right? We're sort of taken aback by what Jesus says that following him is really all about. Or if you go out and you say these same things to others, you know, in the church... Not this church, of course, but other churches, right? If you were to go out and start talking about denying self and crucifying self and self-denial and self-sacrifice, taking up the cross, right, you start talking about following Jesus into suffering and rejection and even to death, and suddenly Christians are saying, hold on a minute, that's not what I signed up for. I signed up for the God-has-a-wonderful-plan-for-my-life gospel, right? That's not what I'm looking to do. I want to be part of the kingdom, right? I'm a kingdom kid, right? I want to live like a child of the king. I want to be successful, and I want to be wealthy, and I want to be prosperous. And, of course, this is the message that's actually preached in many pulpits in churches today. And in a lot of ways, it's what we could call the Your Best Life Now view of the world, and of the faith, and of the kingdom. That is actually the title of a book written by a well-known preacher. I won't tell you his name, but it's actually called Your Best Life Now. Skip that one, yeah, thanks. Your Best Life Now, Seven Steps to Living at Your Full Potential. Again, I won't tell you who wrote it, (laughs) but don't read it, don't even Google it. You can go back. Well. But the whole idea is it's the, you know, you only got one life, so let's make the best of it while you can kind of an approach. And here's the thing, is that the premise of that approach isn't even necessarily that wrong. It's the approach to the approach that is categorically incorrect because they're going about it in exactly the wrong way. They're going about it through the elevating and the developing and the embracing of the self which sounds a little bit different than what Jesus is talking about here when he talks about the denial and the crucifying of self. There is such an emphasis in our culture of finding yourself and fulfilling yourself, whatever that happens to look like, right? People are trying to find it in all the wrong places, right? Years ago, you guys remember that song? If you're kind of old, right? It was called Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places, but it was about cowboys, right? And it was about dating. But we've come to the point now where loving yourself has become so much of a priority in the culture, right? That you just need to love yourself and nobody can tell you what that looks like or what it doesn't look like. And you just need to go out and do whatever it is that makes you happy and makes you feel good. You just need to pursue your passions at any cost, because at the end of the day, it is all about you. And of course, this isn't new in one sense, because it's kind of been the human condition from the beginning. But, but I think it does seem like it's new in the sense that this is now really the dominating kind of cultural mindset. And again, it's this mindset that's creeping in to our churches, that ultimately everything is revolving around you and your happiness. And so I think that the anthem really for today's people is they're looking for life in all the wrong places, right? We talked last week about people desperately looking for an identity and they think they're going to find it in themselves, right? They think they're going to find identity in, in what they're preference is or what their orientation is or what group they best identify with and so they reject Jesus because of it but here's the irony is that the only thing that actually answers the question of identity is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us that we were created by a loving God to find our identity and our satisfaction through our relationship with him. And all of this that the culture warriors are so adamantly promoting as the path to self-fulfillment, it is all simply a lie from the enemy. And it's designed to distract us and to draw us away from what our Creator knows, will only ultimately provide for our satisfaction. And so here comes Jesus, right, in this challenging text, and he says, look, if you buy into that, and if you do something other than what I'm telling you you need to do, you may live out all the years of your life, but you will miss life in its entirety. You will miss the purpose of life. Now I'm not one for creeds and and catechisms but, but along these lines it was the Westminster Confession of Faith, right, which was created in the 1600s by a group of Bible scholars and theologians. They were really just trying to get to the essence of what the Christian faith was about. They were trying to uphold the authority of the scriptures. But I think that it gets right to the heart of this issue because at the very beginning it asks, what is the chief end of man? And then it answers, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's where true life is found. That's where meaning and purpose and depth of existence is found in life. It's knowing him and obeying him and serving him at whatever cost to my life to do it. And it's our privilege to do it right, to find life as it was intended to be. And to move away from that is to miss the meaning of life altogether. And so here these words of Jesus really create this paradox for us, right? He's saying, deny yourself and take up the cross and follow me. And yes, he's talking about the reality. Yes, there is going to be suffering. There is going to be rejection. There is going to be struggle. There are going to be all of those things. But you know what? right in the middle of all of that, there's going to be righteousness, and there's gonna be peace, and there's gonna be joy that nothing else in this world can ever compare with. Right, Paul talks about it. He calls it the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. And he says that it will guard our hearts and our minds through Christ Jesus. We now have the peace of God Because the gospel of Jesus Christ has put us at peace with God, right? True peace, happiness, joy, all the riches of the world can never provide us. Years ago, I would travel each year, sometimes to these very small and remote villages in India and in Nepal. And we would teach in these pastoral training schools um, for the native pastors. And in some of these areas, as Westerners, we were overcome, especially on the early trips, we were overcome as we came face-to-face with the kinds of poverty and disease and the real sickness and the real suffering, sickness and suffering like we simply do not know here. And I remember being so moved in the midst of that scene because what was astounding was that these people who were believers, who were there and had trusted in Jesus, they were so full of joy. They were so full of contentment, and it just simply radiated from their faces. And these were people that didn't have any of the things that we have here in the West. They didn't have any of the comforts. They didn't have any of what we would consider to be basic necessities. But they were more perfectly contented and they were more filled with joy, right? True gospel joy and true gospel contentment. And it made its mark on my heart in a permanent marker that you truly can have all the stuff the world says that you ought to have and you can still be the most miserable person in the world. Or you can be like these outcast children who are untouchable according to their society, but they have Jesus and none of that other stuff even matters at all. And so you think about this is where the trade-off is and we hear it's so easy for us We get caught up looking at the lifestyles of the rich and famous, right? It's just a flip away of the channel on reality TV. And it's this perfect picture of the perfect life. And it looks so amazing and it looks so wonderful. And this is what you want to strive for, right? But you don't need to look very hard to realize that it's just a facade. That those people are terribly messed up oftentimes, and often hurting in deep ways, and many of their lives are so very miserable just below that veneer. And that's why they are in and out of rehab. That's why they're in and out of marriages. That's why they're in and out of relationships and in and out of their substance abuse and all these different kinds of things, right? And this is such an important point for us to understand. And just in case it wasn't clear, in case it wasn't crystal clear enough the way that Jesus just said it, he's now going to say it in a different way. Now he's going to put it in really practical and even eternal terms. Look at verses 36 and 37. He says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So here are these penetrating, right? Really practical, rhetorical questions. He's almost putting things in, you know, economic terms that everybody could identify with. He's reinforcing that paradox that he just laid out in verse 35, right? That we have to lose our life to find it. But he's also now highlighting the eternal consequences of making the wrong choices in this life. Right? It's a warning about the dangers of departing from God's will for our lives, leaving those demands that he made for us in verse 34, abandoning those things to go after material things. And Jesus says, look what he says. He says that all of the material things in the world, right, even if any of us could get everything in the entire world, right, including all the power that goes with it, Jesus says that even all of that are not worth missing a life of obedience to God and of service to God and then ultimately missing out on an eternity spent in heaven with God. Because here Jesus certainly seems to take things right from the temporal off into the eternal. And he's really challenging us to focus on eternity even during this life. There, every one of us in this room would agree that we would not, you know, sell our soul to Satan for even a billion dollars. And yet in actuality, what do we do? We very often give it away for a whole lot less. We allow some cheap trinket or some momentary pleasure or some earthly relationship to come in between us and the Lord Jesus, like we said, the simplest Christian in the simplest hut in the most remote, remote part of the earth who obeys God's commandments, right, and is fulfilling God's call upon their life, they are infinitely richer and more satisfied than the richest person in the world who is not doing those things. And we can all sit here on a Sunday morning and we can say a hearty amen. But on some level, we need to really ask ourselves Do I really believe that? And the reason that I want us to ask ourselves is because I think that deep, deep down, whether we know it or not, I think we really do. I think we really do believe it because we know even living here in our luxury and our affluence, we know that even those things don't seem to satisfy us the way that they used to before we came to know the Lord. And before we came to really experience that true intimacy and that peace with him. We all know this Christian life can be hard. Right? Honoring the Lord in our daily decisions can be difficult. And in many ways it is. It's a long, slow, painful death of our flesh. As we have to say no to all kinds of things that seem completely fine for other people. And sometimes in the hardest times we have these thoughts of just abandoning it all. Just out of sheer self-preservation, we just want to do whatever we want to do just like everybody else seems to get to do what they want to do. Whatever that looks like in your life, maybe it's a spending spree or it's a drug or a drinking binge or it's some sort of a sexual indulgence. Whatever it is, we just want to go do it. And yet we know on some level that in just a matter of hours or maybe a day, We would be longing to be right back there in that place of whatever sacrifices were required of us to restore that intimacy and that closeness with him. That's one of the beautiful things about being a Christian and having that Holy Spirit residing within our lives. that once we've come to know him and we've come to serve him, we start to experience that beautiful supernatural dynamic between us and the Holy Spirit in that place. And we do realize that there is nothing else in this world that can satisfy. It is the greatest experience that you can have. And to be a spirit-filled Christian and to be a serving Christian is to be forever spoiled from returning back into the world. And that's exactly why, remember when Jesus spoke, he gave that great sermon to that great crowd. They were following him. It was in John chapter 6. It was right after the first feeding of the 5,000 men. And we had all these multitudes, but we talked a little bit about it, the fact that they were mostly following after him just because they were looking for a meal ticket. But that's when he took that occasion. He starts to speak to them about the fact that he is the very bread of life that came down from heaven the bread of life that satisfies. And then he started talking to them about eating his body and drinking his blood, right? In other words, you know, imparting his life into their life, following after him, right? And what John tells us is that at that point, most of that huge crowd starts to fall away. It says in John 6.60 that when they heard all this, they said, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? And for the most part, they start abandoning Jesus. And then it's such a beautiful scene because Jesus, remember, he turns to the disciples, right? He turns to the 12. And I think it's such one of the most vulnerable moments related to Jesus in all of the Bible. And he turns to the 12 and he says, do you also want to go away? You know, will you abandon me also? And of course, it's Peter, right, who steps up and he says something that's wonderful way beyond himself says that Simon Peter answered him and he said Lord to whom shall we go he says you have the words of eternal life and understand this is long before this is just as the boys were starting to get their understanding of Jesus kind of sorted out but the point is that even here at this point Peter knew already that he could never go back and be satisfied he had already been spoiled for the things of the world by the Lord Jesus. And I don't know about you, maybe you've had a similar experience. I know for Michelle and me, there was a moment, maybe it was a year or so in to our Christian life, there was this art and wine festival that we used to go to each and every year. And so we went, right, as we always did, but now we went as Christians. And we walked down the street, And we looked at the art, and we listened to the music, but it just wasn't the same. But it actually was the same, but it was us who were different. And we realized on that day, and we kind of said to each other jokingly, that Jesus has ruined us for the world. And of course, it's so true, right? Things just don't satisfy like they used to. And if there's any one of us sitting here in this room this morning and you are being tempted by the devil to go off into some kind of a short-term or even a long-term backside, let me tell you right now that's crazy because you will never be satisfied out there because you have been spoiled and you have been ruined for that. And isn't that precisely why you came to church this morning, right? To, to be told that you've been spoiled and been ruined by the Holy Spirit forever. You can never again return to the world and be satisfied. You can't be happy there. You won't be satisfied there. And so that's why Jesus, for our own good, he warns us that to live that life he's describing here is the only thing really that makes us the richest people in the world by the standards of heaven. And then he adds this final word, right? It's another strong word of exhortation. There's some admonishment here. Look at verse 38. It says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So here, Jesus concludes, right, this crystal clear, strong exhortation. He reminds his hearers and he reminds us that there are serious eternal implications for how we live our lives here on earth. And he does it, Again, to refocus our perspective and to set, or to reset, our sights on heaven. To get our sights off of the temporal and put them back onto the eternal because he knows that that's what will enable us to stand strong in the midst of a culture that is constantly working to pull us down. This is a warning against us being ashamed or being bullied by the culture. Right, being intimidated by the culture where we can start as Christians to be ashamed of his words. We start to be ashamed of the word of God. Where we start saying, well, I know that it says that, but I, you know, that's not what it really means. And you know, that part was kind of written for a different time. And Christians start adjusting the word of God just to better accommodate the changing tastes of the culture and what it wants it to say. And we can never allow that. We can never allow that shame into our lives or the fear of man in our lives to silence us or cause us to deny the Lord or to shy away from anything less than a wholehearted service and stand for him, right? We need to do it graciously and patiently and lovingly, but never forget, we are on the right side of this equation. It doesn't take but a brief look at the world around us to see the mess that the world is in morally and spiritually and socially. And you just look at the casualties that the philosophies of man and man's definition of right and wrong and what those things have produced. I mean, really, the irony here is that it's the world who should be ashamed of what it now calls truth. It's the world that should be ashamed at what it defines as the meaning of life when it's just simply been proven untrue in every life, in every single generation. But Jesus assures us, he fixes our eyes back on eternity and he reminds us that the kingdom, right, his kingdom, it is coming in its fullness at the end of all this mess and it's that kingdom that we need to be focused on and living for. And until then... We live here on this journey through this world that we know isn't our home and we do it following a different kind of a king, right? We do it following the true king. But here's what we need to understand. He is a king now who's in exile, right? So we're living in a time of Jesus' exile and we need to stand here with our King in exile, right? The true Messiah, the King of Israel is in exile. He's exiled from Israel. He's exiled from the world today. You know, you can go out in public and you can preach just about any religion you want. And you might get a few people rolling their eyes or you might get a great crowd wanting to join up, but you go out there and you preach Jesus Christ. And you preach the cross. You preach him crucified and risen from the dead to pay for the sins of the, you know, you try that. You try to pray in Jesus' name before a football game. And nobody wants to hear that message because the king is still in exile. But we're living here now as citizens of his kingdom. And as he just laid out for us this morning, it's a very different kind of kingdom with very different terms of citizenship. And so we are now losing our lives, but we're losing them for him. And I'll just say this in closing. Notice again in verse 35, Jesus says that whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So we're losing our lives for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of his gospel message. That's what we're losing our lives for. We are giving up our lives. We are putting the flesh to death for something that is so much bigger than just ourselves. We talked a little bit about it last week, right? We're living in the day of the cause, right? All the causes that people are taking up like never before. Well, I will tell you about a great cause. It's the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the cause of being able to extend to people that incredible offer of forgiveness and of hope and of peace and of a restored relationship with the God of the universe. right The one who so uniquely and beautifully and individually created each and every person to be in relationship with him. It's like Paul says to the Corinthians that God's given us this ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world in himself, uh, to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. So that's what Jesus says we should lose our lives for. And I think that this is important because I think it adds a little bit of closing clarity here right, to what it is that's Jesus asking of us, it kind of gives some specific definition on what really living for God actually looks like. But to live for God simply means to live for the gospel. It means to live for the kingdom. Not that we necessarily stop doing whatever it is he's got us doing. I mean, as far as your vocation or your situation that the Lord has you in, we don't necessarily stop doing that. But what it means is that we now do that very same thing, but we do it for a far greater purpose. It means that we do everything we do with the gospel as the reason. In every interaction, every situation that we're in, we keep in mind we're doing it in the context of the gospel. And you've probably heard this old expression before, but it's so very true. The only thing that we are taking to heaven is people, right? The only thing we're taking to heaven is people. And so we are losing our lives, right? We're dying daily to ourself. We are losing our lives so that they can find theirs, right? Just like our King Jesus did for us, amen? That's a good place for me to just stop. Stop. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, as challenging as this text is, Lord, for so many, I pray, Lord, that we would see the encouragement in it, Lord, that with the challenge comes a promise, Lord, of life as you intended it, Lord, of fulfillment and of satisfaction on a level that most people never understand. And so, Father, I pray in each of our hearts, Lord, that you would um, just quicken our hearts, Lord, that these truths would be real to us, Lord, and that they would come alive for us. Lord, I pray that you would help to strengthen us as we purpose in our hearts to to do these things, Lord, as you commanded. And so, Father, we thank you, and we praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. amen.